0: The Jobcast, now with extra maps, with Ian Morrison, Aretina Mogoshanu, Samuel Lewski, George Bendo, Phoebe Stainton, Hongying Chen, Michael Wright, Emma Alexander, and Joe Henson. The Jobcast, December 2019 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jobcast. I'm George and joining me in the studio today are Hongying.
1: Hi. And Phoebe. Hello.
0: So Phoebe's a new student here at the Jodro Bank Center for Astrophysics. Uh, Phoebe, do you briefly want to introduce yourself and tell us what you're doing?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, so my name's Phoebe, as George just said, and I'm working with Dr. Albert Zilstra on studying Sakurai's objects in the Sagittarius Nebula and trying to figure out what the hell it's doing.
0: What is Sakurai's object?
2: That's a really good question and basically the topic for my thesis. We think it's a reborn white dwarf, but we're not 100% sure.
0: Funky. (laughs) I look forward to uh, seeing what comes out of your work. In the show this time, Emma Alexander and Joe Henson interview Bobby Siegel about mathematics and astronomy, as well as his work on popularizing maths. And Ian Morrison, Heratina Mogushanu, and Samuel Lesky take a look at what's happening in the December Night Sky. But first, before all of that, here's Michael Wright with this month's news. The news, December 2019.
3: So what's been going on in the news over the past month? Firstly, it's worth discussing the claim of a fifth force of nature, what's been called the X-17 particle. Basically, in the standard model of particle physics, forces arise from what is known as a force carrier. So, for example, photons for electromagnetism, and gluons for the strong force, these are particles that carry that force. And now, scientists at the Institute for Nuclear Research at the Hungarian Academy of Sciences have claimed they've discovered the carrier particle for a fifth force. Attila Krasnohorky and his colleagues did this by looking at the decay of particles. Raise a particle into an excited state and let it decay. In this case, they use the decay of helium-4, which releases an electron-positron pair, an electron and its corresponding antiparticle. And we can predict things about the properties of this pair from our knowledge of particle physics. In this case, the angle between them when emitted. And the researchers find a discrepancy between what they measure and what you would expect from the standard model of particle physics when they looked at over a large number of decays. One explanation which they argue for is that this is due to the actual decay involving the creation and then subsequent decay of a previously undiscovered particle, this force carrier. They refer to it as X17 as it would have a mass of 17 mega electron volts. However, this is the explanation that they argue for. The next step is then going to have to be to have other research institutes perform these experiments and other similar particle decay experiments to check this. If it's true, it could be very useful, as a new way for particles to interact with each other is of obvious interest to science, especially interesting to astronomy, where we see problems like asking what dark matter or dark energy really are. If we understand that we haven't worked out all the ways that particles interact, that could be one part of our solution. However, at the moment, we have two experiments both performed by the same experimental group. So, to give an example, if there's a problem with their apparatus, the way we could check this is by trying to get those results using different equipment. Also, the mathematical description can be refined and tested by other scientists, as well as having many theorists propose alternate theoretical explanations for the result. So it's a long way into the future before we understand whether this is really a new fifth force. Another interesting piece of news is a theoretical paper by a group led by Kiechi Wada titled Planet Formation Around Supermassive Black Holes in the Active Galactic Nuclei. Basically, as the title suggests, the paper is about the idea of finding planets around supermassive black holes, which is not as surprising an idea as it may sound. Our ideas of planet formation have a key point of this protoplanetary disk of gas and dust, from which matter clumps together and clumps and clumps and clumps and eventually forms planets. The authors of this paper extend the idea to supermassive black holes, which are observed to be surrounded by a torus of dust, with cold dense gas forming a thin disk shape being part of that. The paper works from this to mathematically predict so which types of AGN they would form from to get an idea of what happens to their planet-forming model, where you vary properties, for example, the mass of the black hole, and just generally get an idea of how this would work. We don't really have any experiments yet which could search for these, but it's something to look forward to in the future as another completely different area where we might find other planets. And finally, something from early November was a paper suggesting a closed universe. Briefly, researchers led by University of Manchester's own Eleonora de Valentino have been analysing data from the Planck mission. They've been measuring anisotropies in the cosmic microwave background, so basically variations in that background, and they've found evidence that the data from Planck supports a closed universe. In brief, some of this shape the CMB is down to a lensing effect which changes with the universe's curvature. And the size of this effect in Planck data can be explained by the idea of a universe with a far higher curvature than previously thought. We've had other data predicting a universe with a curvature very close to zero. And they're now showing that Planck data shows this preference for positive curvature. However, they work from this to explain that it leads to another problem. It gives Planck data producing estimates of cosmological parameters which are in contradiction with that of previous experiments. So overall, a lot of interesting problems for astronomy. If the universe has not got this positive curvature, if it's flat or very close to flat, why does the Planck data suggest this? And if the universe is curved, why is it producing different cosmological parameters to other data? Why is there this tension between the parameters predicted by Planck and other data sets? It's a very interesting and now open question. And that's all in the news for the last month. Back to the
2: studio. Thanks for that, Mike. Now Emma Alexander and Joe Hansen interviews Bobby Segal about the role of mathematics in astronomy, as well as how to popularize math among the general audience.
4: We're here with Bobby Siegel, who is a mathematician, teacher, and writer. Uh, since appearing on University Challenge in 2017, he's been an advocate of all things mathematical across the media, and has recently published his book, The Life-Changing Magic of Numbers. So he's here today uh, to talk to myself and Joe about the maths of astronomy um, and, and beyond. So thank you very much for joining us.
5: Hello, John Jodcasters.
4: Um so, um we've we've got a whole host of different things that we can talk about today. Um so you um are no stranger to Bank. You uh, were at Blue Dot with us um this past summer, just gone. Um and you also visited us on your your Genius Guide to Britain where you, you visited Roger Bank. Yeah,
6: and not only did you just visit Rodrigo Bank, you've done something that I can speak personally that I would love to do and I'm sure many listeners do. You've been in the dish of the Lovell telescope. How was that? Oh it
0: was
5: again My TV series was called Monkman and Seagull's Genius Guide to Britain on BBC Two. So if you want to think of, I'm trying to think about Venn diagrams, imagine there's QI, a sort of knowledge-based, fact-heavy bonanza, and then you've got Top Gear, a car-based show. If you look at the intersection of the Venn diagram, that's where our show was. Uh, Two people that enjoy learning about the world, but we go around in a car exploring bits of the UK, Um, and we ended up at... George we thought we wanted something showcasing Britain's astronomy. and um, I don't think we knew that we were going to walk in the actual telescope till quite late on. Um, and they did ask us, are you afraid of heights, and we are like, uh, uh, it depends how high. <laughs> uh, and then we met the wonderful uh, Professor Tim O'Brien, who was such a gracious host, and he actually told us that, and I thought, was, I'm a big Doctor Who fan, so I'm, wearing a, I'm not wearing a Doctor Who show, I'm wearing a, a, another mathematical show, we may discuss later, but... Um Tim said on the day that he can imagine that being a fight for Doctor Who like an episode. Mm-hmm.
4: Well, it, it kind of was in uh, w- the, the the fourth doctor Tom Baker when he um, the the episode in which he regenerated, he fell off um a it was it was kind of based on the the radio talk at the Pharos project um on on Logopolis. Um and uh, yes, Tom Baker fell to his death from something that was not quite the Lovell telescope, but was meant to be modelled on the Lovell telescope. So there is, they, they never actually ended up filming at Jodrell Bank, I think, due to budget reasons, but um, there, there is already that little link, link to Jodrell Bank. I'd, I'd love them to come back and film something. If, if anyone involved in Doctor Who is listening, please
5: come back to Jodrell Bank. I'm a Doctor Who fan. I'm going to, I'm going to like send out those nudges towards my colleagues at the BBC. Oh, I like Jodrell Bank. Oh, I like Doctor Who. Why don't you get a camera crew there? That would be amazing. <laughs> yeah. But actually, I met I met Joe for the first time. Yeah. At the Blue Dot, i I was a bit startled because again I watched University Challenge, and <laughs> Joe was one of my standout uh, characters. And then I think I don't know if you were going to be there, but he suddenly popped up at the front. Yeah. I was like, oh, he's back from Manchester University Challenge with the really, he had some great interactions with Jeremy Paxman. I remember.
6: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it was absolutely terrifying. Uh, I don't know how you found it, but um, I mean I recommend it a hell of a lot, and I got. it gotten more calm, but... <laughs> I
5: they have all physics and astronomy questions. Astronomy, they love astronomy on. Mm.
4: They, they are pretty much the only ones that I can get on University <laughs> Challenge. I like to think I have a broad knowledge of things and then I, I watch University Challenge and I can only get the physics and astronomy ones. I'm like, okay, maybe not then. <laughs> um, I
6: managed to get pranked by Jeremy Paxman on the astronomy question.
5: Was that the one where... He sort of said correct no, you're not correct.
6: Exactly that.
5: Um, <laughs> that's classic meme on
4: Yeah, no, Joe jo is now our uh, resident meme meme machine, meme, uh, meme? I, I don't know. Um, well, meme icon. Meme icon. That's that's uh, what I'm looking for. <laughs> but
6: not the best quitter at Joshua bank, that would be Adam Barr.
5: That would oh, be Yeah. 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 That, funny enough, as Adam Barr, I either I met him on a holiday in Malta by coincidence. I know he he went to a, he went on sort of debating course with my other sibling. So, Adam Barr, we saw yeah. our worlds have collided. <laughs> so,
6: so, yeah, I, I, I was at your talk, as you just mentioned. It, it was fantastic. Um, how did you find speaking at Blue Dot?
5: Again, it's such a privilege to be there, because you think of the most iconic festivals in the UK, you think of, like, Glastonbury, Glindbourne, uh, um, the Hay Literary Festival. And I think Blue Dot stands up there as one of those iconic British cultural festivals. Um, well, I turned up on a day that was very damp and um, <laughs> very drizzly, and, and my actually my talk was It was the Friday. Yeah, yeah, and my talk <laughs> had, was heaving with people. I'd like to think was because they came to see my but actually it was chucking it down. Uh, so everyone was just like, oh god, let's get in here, let's stay here, a thousand people stuck on the one we were listening to Bobby Siegel talking about maths. <laughs>
4: Well, speaking to Bobby Siegel talking about maths, mm. um, we've got a few questions for you based on the maths of astronomy, because astronomy, the, the, there is so much maths involved with it. Um, and I know it's, it's something that people can shy away from a bit. Um, but um, some of the questions that we had for you was maybe talking about some of the mathematical concepts that we use a lot in astronomy, um, but don't necessarily think about in terms of maths. Um, so, for example... Um, logarithms are a big part of astronomy in terms of things like magnitude when we're talking about um, how bright a star is, if it's um, uh, magnitude 1, magnitude 2, um, but I think it, it takes a bit of thinking in terms of understanding how they work. So I was wondering if you could go into that a little bit.
5: Yes, yeah, so actually again I'll be honest, I did a little bit of reading for this as well, um, but my, again as someone that's a quizzer, I always like looking back at history firstly to understand the context of it, then try and get into the numbers side. So I think, again, with science, physics, mathematics, obviously there's the pure side of it, but I think sometimes people get excited when they hear there are real people involved in getting this set forward. Um, so I think with um, the stellar magnitude system, a chap called Hipparchus, about 130 BC, was the first person that tried to sort of um, identify stars by their brightness. And he said, you know, we've got the first magnitude of order, uh, which are the brightest, and the second magnitude is less bright. And all the way down to the sixth, which is very faint. Um, And then about 250 years later, Ptolemy, he came and said, oh, so we've got these six orders of magnitude, but we can fine-tune it a bit more. So between the first and second, there's something in between. Between the second and third, there's something in between, and so on. And then we come to our man, Galileo, a bit later. Um, You know, Galileo of Bohemian Rhapsody. Love that that
4: song. song. Galileo. Galileo. (laughs) Galileo. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <He goes off. laughs> oh, we should do a jodcast sing along. Uh, Maybe not.
5: And then he found actually there are things even less bright than the sixth magnitude. So he came up with the seventh magnitude. Um, obviously now we've got things. I think mean, the Hubble can detect all the way to the thirty-first. But obviously we're looking at how can we, how can we measure the brightness of stars and normal things in uh, sort of daily life like height. Of building heights of people or weights, um, we have a linear scale. You know, so 40 kilograms, 50 kilograms, 50 to 60, and the gap between 40 to 50 and 50 to 60 is the same. But where I guess the, uh, the scale of things is enormous, or the gap between the small and the large is huge, actually a linear scale starts looking a bit like a crazy exponential graph, where your graph paper is not big enough. Uh, or the kids would have fun um, with a graph paper the size of the classroom. Um, so then logarithmic scales um, came into play. And the way we can think about it is, so there was, um, in the 1850s, a Oxford astronomer called Pogson, is that his name? I, 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 <laughs> I think I'll think of Pogba when I hear of Pogson, <laughs> the, the footballer. I'm not to really be confused. Uh, Pogson, and he tried to use almost a logarithmic scale. And he said um, the difference between five magnitudes of brightness, the ratio is 100 to 1. So for 5 magnitudes, you take the 5th root of that, you get 2.5. 2.51 to about 2.5. So if you go from magnitude 1 to magnitude 2, you are dimming the light by a factor of 2.5. And, and you go from 2 to 3, another 2.5. Um, but the weird thing about this is that, actually, because it's a, it's not absolute brightness, it's like it's an apparent brightness, the sun is minus 26.7. And again, like, Sometimes I, as a maths teacher, I try and explain to members of the public or, or, or students or parents things in maths and science that seem a bit odd. And again, myself, like, it, well, the first time I saw it, I thought, ah, the sun's mm-hmm. a pound brightness minus 26.7. It's, it, it's, it's uh, a unusual, so what are your thoughts on whether, even you know, like, magnitudes, we can, I don't know, do a makeover and make it much more standardized?
4: I think it was it that XKCD comic where it's like ah there's this 15 standards so we, we need to make them all the same and uh, like let's create a new standard and then you just end up with 16 standards uh, rather than the original 15 um, I mean as we some There are some conventions in astronomy out there which just make no sense whatsoever. <laughs> uh, they're named for historical reasons um, and then we learn more about the science and it turns out that the, the names are wrong. Uh, the classic one I'm thinking of is early type and late type galaxies. Um, they're actually, they're, their age is the other way around to what you might think, um, but they were named when the theories were the wrong way around. Um, so yeah, just astronomy, just it just doesn't make sense sometimes. I will happily admit that. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think ma- yeah magnitudes and brightness, it, it definitely is something that you think, well, wait, so the brighter you go, you go into the negatives, the negatives. and it's... The dimmer yeah, you get yeah. into the
5: higher positive integers.
6: Am I, am I right in thinking that they, they define the, the star Vega as negative zero and then found out it was slightly variable
4: <laughs> that that does ring a bell it wouldn't surprise me yeah
6: that so was also one of my oddly one of my favorite university challenge questions it wasn't deep astronomy knowledge but it showed like a good awareness of it was um which star has an apparent magnitude of this and an absolute magnitude of minus this and people guessed it it's serious and we're taking guesses it was the sun of course uh, yeah. i thought that was a very clever question because if you knew had a grasp of magnitudes, then you'd a become obvious and funny. But yeah, 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 yeah. But no one got it, yeah? It was it <laughs> in one of your matches? Oh, no,
5: I'd love that. Um. <laughs> yeah, on so my, well, my team, we had um, a uh, Mr. Barton singer. He was our president mm. physicist. So the thing is, I, I, again, I Very quite good. like physics and astronomy, but then on the University Challenge team, there's someone else whose expertise it is. You, you sort of buzz at your, at your, I don't know, what do you call it? Your peril yeah there a couple of questions where there was once we had a question of solar flare or solar wind and I was thinking I think, it's, I think it's solar flare but I thought if I buzz and get it wrong and luckily my friend buzzed in and got the correct thing so uh, <laughs> the mathematician referring to the actual physicist there
4: but yeah just in, in terms of yeah just astronomical scales I mean even I struggle to sometimes kind of conceptualise how how vast everything is in space and we talk about things being so many light years away or parsecs and Things taking you know millions and yet millions of years for the light to get to us, and it, it just is very hard to then put that into a human relatable perspective, and just some of the numbers are just so big, and d- do we struggle as as humans to make sense of scales that large?
5: We do. I think we're sort of good at identifying numbers at a smaller scale, and I'll give you an example. I'll ask you a question in a second. <laughs> so I think there's a there's a tribe. Uh, I think called the Piraha tribe in uh, in South America in the Amazon, and they count one, two, and then many. Everything above three is many. And then, looking into their tribe, the reason they do that is, um, so you ask them, how many children do you have? They don't consider it their children, they consider it the community's children. So if they have a third child, oh, there's many children, we share it with the community. So for them, the concept of number, number's not relevant to us. But obviously, we've created for science clubs, we need number to understand things, order things. And, but I think intuitively, again, for some part we think, oh, you know, intuitively we're built for numbers. I think we're good at learning and understanding what numbers, but actually our intuition's not very good. So I'll give you a comparison, which I've seen um, Matt Parker. Have you heard of Matt Parker? Actually, Matt, uh, later I want to talk about Matt Parker's amazing uh, t-shirt that I'm wearing. (laughs) Actually, wanted some BBC Breakfast and someone thought this was a political statement. It is a (laughs) geometrical statement.
4: We we will definitely put a picture up with with the (laughs) set because It's a very good t-shirt. We will talk about it in a minute. (laughs) So Matt Parker
5: was saying that um, humans were so bad at numbers, that, and his example was: so imagine you've got a million seconds, uh, a billion seconds, and a trillion seconds. Um, do you know roughly like how many, how long a million seconds might be? Just off the top of your head, I mean, I don't know. If the first time, I. It's Twelve something, isn't it? Yes, yeah, eleven days. So eleven days. Yeah, 11, eleven days. Yeah, <laughs> so close, very close. And then if you ask, if you ask again, we did a straw poll outside. It's because I'd read that,
6: I wouldn't have guessed yeah. that if I hadn't read the factory, you know,
4: sorry. I, I, them, I, <laughs> I, I was sat here for contact. You absolutely no clue.
5: <laughs> so a million seconds is about, yeah, ele, ele, 11 and a half, uh, close to, yeah, rounded up would be 12 days. And then you ask, so if you ask someone else on the street, so what would a billion seconds be? They might think, oh, maybe it's 12 days,
4: maybe like, I
5: don't know, 50 days, 100 days.
4: And maybe the really extreme ones might say a
5: year, even. Yeah, a year it's a thing.
4: It, it must be many, many years. It's 31 years. It's 31. 31
5: is a billion seconds. And then we do a trillion seconds. And then again, again, we're, again we're thinking, oh, that's a, um, a million times uh, a thousand, 10 to 3 is a billion, then times 10 to 3 is a trillion. So our scale sense, we're thinking, oh, so if that's 30 years for a million seconds, a, a trillion seconds, maybe, I not I don't know, 100 years, maybe a, a millennium. That's what, that's what you might instinctively think. But it's 33,700 years, a trillion seconds. And if you look at that, 1 million seconds is 11 days, 1 billion seconds is 31 years, and then a trillion seconds is 33,700 years. And instinctively, that, that, that doesn't sit easy with me. And it just mm-hmm. shows our sense of numbers and scale. We can't really appreciate which is why when we look into space and you see the numbers there, you just, you your mind blown. Again, I've done some work with our year sevens in my schools, so I teach in a school year seven to 11, and some of our feeder primary schools. And I know that sometimes if you put like a Brian Cox documentary, the kids, they get, so I say, oh my God, space. Math needs like a, a, a Brian Cox style makeover. We need, we need amazing graphics, people. Um, but again, when you talk to kids about the scale of the, even just the solar system, they just think, oh, so you know, there's there's the sun, and they can almost with their fingers they say there's the Mercury and Venus and Earth and Mars and Jupiter. The thing is, uh, it's funny, um, the planets. M- most people they've got like little acronyms. My primary school had classes named after yeah. like, the planets, but guess which planet we didn't have? Uh, Pluto. Well, back then, Pluto was a planet, but which uh-huh. Earth? not Earth. Uh-huh. Which is a rude sounding.
4: Oh, so, <laughs> so the head teacher
5: got rid of that. So we had Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Neptune, Pluto. So lots of children in my school. There's, there's a school in East Ham, East London, which famous, where students do not know the existence of the universe. Because the head teacher got rid of it. That's,
4: that's... I don't know whether to be amazed
1: by
5: that or to be upset. Yeah, I, I think... Did I realise? I think for a few years, I didn't think there was a planet. My dad once got me a book and said... Probably you know there's a planet called Uranus. No.
4: Amazing. So
5: the the point about scale was so um you can build models of the solar system. So if you get a little peppercorn, the one I I think in America they've got peppercorns. Are they
4: popular here? I mean. Well, just yeah, you can get like whole peppercorns. Yeah. you put them in a fancy grinder.
5: Yeah. So it's about point nine, point eight of a centimeter, and on that scale, so the sun would be about a meter. Yeah. So we've got one AU which is about 150 million kilometres. So on that little scale we've got a peppercorn being the earth and a one metre wide football. Imagine a beach ball uh, being the sun. Um, the gap between the earth and the sun on that scale would be about 100 metres. So just, just past, actually about 107. So between, you know the 110 hurdles, imagine Usain Bolt being the 110 hurdles. You think Paul wouldn't be a very good head, I don't know. Would he be a good head? I feel like he probably would be. <laughs> He's probably good be yeah. cool, yeah. But
4: better than me at any rate. Yeah.
5: <laughs> and then um, if we go to Neptune and Pluto, the so Neptune, how many, has it, is it 20 AUs? 20 AUs? Oh,
6: they've got good at them.
5: 20 AUs? Goodness, it. This is a good 20. year. Again, all my university <laughs> challenge days, I would, I would have... Sort of learn the key ones.
6: Yes, that's exactly what I did, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. because I do astronomy, me. I was so scared that when the space comes up I'm not going to get it because I don't really know solar system trivia very well, you know. But I'd be expected to, so I can't get it wrong. <laughs> uh,
4: Neptune is at uh, about 30 AU. Yeah.
6: Okay,
5: um, so when we're looking at the gap between um, the Sun and the Earth and that sort of peppercorn being the Earth, it's about 110 meters. And then again, if you get people in the public to sort of say, oh, so where do you think Neptune and Pluto would be? They, they might go like a few hundred meters further away, but Neptune would end up being three kilometers down. And then Pluto, yes. I'm still a big believer in Pluto. Hands up who believes in Pluto? <laughs> Me! <laughs> Me, I don't know why it's not a planet. I know that's scientific reasons, but Pluto. Pluto, um, Pluto would be 4.3 kilometers away. And if you tell people, that if you consider the Earth as a peppercorn, like less than a centimeter, to imagine that Pluto would be four more than four kilometers away, and that's just our solar system. And I think humans, we don't instinctively have a sense of scale. Like when you know, again, even again, I, before I moved into uh, education and teaching, I used to be an investment bank and a trader. The bank.
1: Boom, boom,
5: boom, boom, <laughs> and, <myself. laughs> and there, when you saw millions and billions being traded you lose the sense of scale, you don't really get that sense. And again, you sort of know what you're doing, but I think the same with astronomy, you just will bandy out things like light years, and parsecs, all these things. But, and we can write out mathematically what it is, but I I think it's maybe we're not hardwired to really get a sense of scale for that sort of number.
4: Yeah. Especially as well, I just had sort a of thought when when you were talking about the the scales with the with the peppercorn and how mm. far Pluto away is, it then really puts it in perspective how we can send things like the New Horizon probe, which went out and, and visited Pluto. Yeah. You know, it that feels like that's, you know, shooting a needle in a haystack from, I, I don't know, I'm mixing, I'm trying to mix analogies here, but yeah, just just the scale that it's on, we think, you know, it's almost, you imagine the solar system as just everything's nicely in a yeah. line and we know exactly where everything's going, but yeah, going something that far away and, and, firing a spacecraft at it and getting there within, you know, a, a tolerance of where you want it to be, like, yeah, again, the scales involved in that are just crazy.
5: I think the public don't probably perhaps appreciate the scale of that, because then again, when you see a solar system, a physical image, all the things would be neatly lined up on one page, and also it wouldn't be difficult to have t- turned to page 27 for Pluto or Neptune, <laughs> and then people might get a sense of, wow, getting new writings all the way down there was truly a phenomenal... Mm achievement of humanity.
4: Mm. Actually, that reminds me, um, there's a very good YouTube video that came out recently by uh, I think it was CPG Gray, um, where they were talking about um, which is the closest planet to Earth, because you might think, oh, it's either Venus or it's Mars, because um, they're the next in the line to us. Um, the answer's actually Mercury, because if you average it out over the orbit, because Mercury is closest to the Sun, um, actually... It, on a, on average, it's the one that's closest to the Earth. And actually, when you work it out for all the planets, Mercury is the closest planet to all the other planets, just by the nature of it being closer into the Sun. Oh, when wow. you average it out, that's
5: that's absolutely
4: phenomenal. Yeah, and and you don't again when you when you've just got this like idea of the planets are all in a line, you don't necessarily think about the fact that they're actually all spread out over the solar system. And it's actually very rare that you will get you know a, a particular alignment of planets. So.
5: Yeah, that is remarkable, because it's something where, I think, maybe, I don't know if it's school physics or school science, they need to do more work for trying to convey the sense of scale, because again, that scale, I I went to a primary school, we had classes named after planets, but we would, like, sometimes we would do, like, school assemblies, uh, Mercury stand there, Venus stand there, Earth stand there, and then Pluto would stand a little bit further away, but not the scale of the peppercorn being four kilometres away, so that sense of scale... I think, I don't think it's an intuitive thing, but I think, again, with maths we can discuss later, you can teach people to develop that appreciation. So we can definitely teach, okay, let's start a campaign for better understanding of the
4: scale. <laughs> and actually, if, if any of our listeners have been out to Droddwell Bank or are planning a trip in the future, obviously we would highly recommend it. Um, in Within the Droddwell Bank grounds, um, there is a kind of to scale model um, of where the planets are. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so it, it stretches all across the site and obviously the inner planets are really close in together and the furthest ones are really far apart. Uh, So I'm not quite sure exactly how they've done it to scale, but um, (laughs) yeah, if you you want to get an appreciation of that, then that's out at Joswell Bank.
5: Yeah, I think I did see that for our TV series. We were filming near there, but because it was so wide-expanded, it couldn't actually be done in the shot, so the editor actually doesn't look like a great shot, but actually, again, it conveys the sense of how big Mm. the solar system... And that's just our solar system, Um, like our observable universe. The recent study by Oxford was about 93 billion light years observable universe and again like <laughs> w- w- okay w- w- what does that mean to us again we can plug in the numbers a light years roughly about 10 trillion kilometers and again it's roughly 10 trillion kilometers and Google told me that but what does that mean can we understand that scale again when we were thinking about counting or oh, the numbers um, so a trillion a million seconds being 11 days a billion seconds being 31 years, and then a trillion seconds being more than 30,000 years, just because we're adding, just seeing a couple of letters at the start, we can't quite grasp the size of
6: numbers. Oh, yeah, the scale thing about astronomy is one of the things that really motivates me to go into it, you know, you see how small the Earth is compared to the galaxy and the universe, it, it seems like, I don't want to learn about this little spit on Earth. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course I want to learn yeah. about it, but... Not as much as you want to
4: know about everything else, you know. Yeah, I mean, and (laughs) I I think it also puts the, it it also makes you think of the question, like, are are we alone in the universe? We are are such Mm. a tiny speck in the whole, pale blue dot, exactly. (laughs) Um, And um, that reminds me of something actually that you you talk about in in your book, um, the Drake equation, which is probably one of the more... Famous uh, mathematical uh, equations in astronomy. Uh, I think that's just that's just a really interesting thing to talk about.
5: Yeah. So again, uh, growing up, um, I used to be, a, I still am, a big fan of Star Trek: Live Long and Prosper, <laughs> <laughs> Um And watching it, obviously that's science fiction. So then you try and find, I try to find, oh, what you know? Let me look into alien life. What can I find out? And one of the first things that cropped up was. Uh, the Drake equation. And this is, mathematically I call it a probabilistic argument hypothesis of estimating the number of civilizations in the galaxy. And essentially, it's almost like a filter. Because you keep on like, I don't know, adding different filters. You start off with a, a huge estimate and you keep on filtering it down for different variables. Um, so again, it's a jod cast you have to sort of visualize this. So n is the number of intelligent civilizations in our galaxy. Um, and then initially we get R star, the first input, which is the um, the rate of star formation. Uh, obviously, you probably need heat. You know, uh, you need some sort of light source for life. Then we have the fraction of those stars that have planets. Uh, sun is, suns are probably stars are too hot to exist, so you need a a planet. And then the ones uh, that have, um, I guess, factors conducive to life. Um, but then again, that doesn't mean that life goes on to exist, so then you multiply by the fraction of plants where life actually goes on to develop. Um, and then you look at the ones where intelligent life, so you might have all the conditions like, was it carbon, phosphorus, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, they're the, some of the main ingredients for life. Then you need um, ones that develop intelligent life, then you multiply by the ones that actually develop communications, because, uh, you know, us, like 20,000 years ago when we were sort of emerging as homo sapiens, we would have been there, but we wouldn't have been emitting any signals. Um, and then finally, you work out the length of time that species been around for. Because obviously, there's a the species that existed for the first five billion years, and all their last signals have gone out. We may not coincide in that timeline. And then Drake, he plugged all these in uh, different different estimates. So for example, he, he he sort of hypothesized there'd be one star formed an average per year in a galaxy, and for the number of stars that have planets, he said between 0.2 and 0.5 for um, so the number of uh, ones uh, that develop intelligent life again you can put it from 0% but then if you put 0% you sort of ruin the whole equation or you can put 100% <laughs> and he put different variables in and then he came up with a on average 20 20 planets um, and I think again if you put the most pessimistic one you get 0 if you put the most optimistic values in you get like a 100 million so clearly it's going to be somewhere between generally probabilistic something around 20 so the maths Tells us actually we'd expect to find civilizations out there,
4: and I guess as well it's the kind of thing where um, it th- th- this equation incorporates lots of different aspects of astronomy, from star formation rates to uh, the number of exoplanets that you would expect to find around stars. And actually, all of these f- fields are still developing as we go along. And so now I think you know probably since the Drake came up with the equation, um, we'll have more accurate numbers for those. And as as we pinpoint those down, I guess that can help us hone in a bit on, on it. But having said that, I suppose if when you're also making a lot of assumptions about things and uh, the things that we know less about, such as you know the, the, the whole life intelligence thing, when we have a sample size of one, nice. um, I, I suppose we can try and pin some areas of it down, but that doesn't help with the areas that we can't pin down as well. And, and what,
5: what I love about this sort of calculation is you can apply it to m- many fields of life. Like the, it's called a Fermi um, estimation, and it, it comes, it's derived from... Enrico uh, Fermi. I'm not sure when he won the Nobel Prize, but he did win a Nobel Prize. Um, and he tried to estimate the strength of an atomic bomb purely by getting a piece of paper. And when the well, sort of early atomic bomb test went, he measured how much it sort of rattled. And then based on that and a few sort of guesstimate variables, he estimated the strength uh, fairly accurately. Um, and again, you can. D- I think the classic one is um, estimate how many piano tuners are there in Chicago. And again, putting in lots of random things like the population of Chicago, how many people you think they might be in a family, how many ones might own a piano, how many people will get their pianos repaired, you end up with a, 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 a figure. And the great thing about Fermi estimation is that even though some things might be overestimating, other things will probably equally underestimate. So on the whole, you get something that's actually not a million miles away from the oh, a million kilometers or you know, whatever astronomical <laughs> unit, <laughs> one 150th of an astronomical <clears throat> unit away from the truth.
6: Yeah, um, the Drake equation played a role in your talk at Dot Festival
5: as well, didn't it? <laughs> it did. So, um, a few years ago, I read a paper that came out, uh, by a man called Peter Backus. I think he was an economist. He wasn't warwick. And he did a paper, Why I Don't Have a Girlfriend. And he, and he's not the first, but there are people who've done it, but he used the Drake equation and adapted it for himself to work out how many potential partners. So I thought, oh, okay, this is an excuse for me, uh, to, t- actually, it was actually funny enough, my mother was so sort of on So, Bobby, get married, you know, as I'm Asian, and if you're Asian, you've got a good uh, Indian background, you've got like a, a good job, a decent degree. Uh, your parents expect you to get married. They think, what's the purpose of your life to get married? Sorry, mother, <laughs> you're wrong here, but anyway. So I genuinely created a PowerPoint presentation for my mother based on, I actually, I actually went through the variables of Drake's equation. And my mother, honestly, she was just like, Bobby, what are you doing? I said, sit there, wait, and we went through the Drake equation. So she learned a little bit about Fermi estimation, and I said, actually, someone else. I showed up the original paper by Peter Backus, and said, I've adapted the variables for myself. Um, so again, instead of like rate of formation of stars, you put the rate of formation of people. That's the population. Then you look at the, um, uh, I guess, the fraction of people that you're interested in, so whether it's male or female or both. Then you look at the location factor, the ones that overlap geographically, your interests, um, and I put it into an equation, and I, and I came out with initially I came up with 73 potential people out there. But actually, funny enough, the thing that I was exciting issue was that seventy is a prime number, and it's a very cool prime number because it's a doubly prime because it's reverse thirty seven is prime <laughs> as well. I think Sheldon in Big Bang Theory that's his favourite prime number because of the, the dual <laughs> the dual nature of it. But I think it's just a it's a quirky way of looking at maths and physics because again, we all in this room we love the sciences because we enjoyed it at school, we had a good experience, and you know we're doing PhDs and research in it. But a lot of the public they think of maths and science and they just maybe had bad experience at school. And when I talked, I actually talked about the, a little bit about the Drake equation and the maths derived, so the equations of love, as it were, uh, on BBC World News. And they said to me, okay, so Bobby, you're not really expecting this equation to work for you. And I said, no, probably, obviously, I'd love it to, but I'm not, you know, it's not not a serious, serious attempt at doing science. (laughs) But it's a way of actually getting people engaged talking about physics because on the back of that, there are some people that on Twitter were saying, oh, the Drake equation, is that realistic? What about these variables here? Or can we apply it to other parts such as dating? Is that really a fair comparison? So we've got people talking about maths and science. So I think the more us as scientists, the mm-hmm. way we're all interested in science and we all enjoy communicating, that we can tell people in the outside, well actually science and maths can be related to real life, then we're more likely to draw them in and they can work on sets of variable styles in the future. But we need to get them in in the first place.
6: Mm. I think um something I think we have mentioned yet actually is that your PhD isn't just maths. It's no, it's hoping you know
5: it tells you, maths anxiety. Yeah, yeah, actually if I was doing a, a pure maths-based PhD, it would be based on derivatives, financial derivatives. In my trading job, I worked on something called. Have you heard of a film called um, The Big Short? Oh, I The Big Short. It's probably the probably the best film explaining the financial crisis. But part of it was due to something called. Um, called collateralized debt obligations and these are exotic financial products that actually rely a lot on understanding derivatives, uh, mathematical derivatives. So if I was doing a pure math uh, PhD, it would have been on derivatives. But then I thought to myself, if I did a pure math PhD, obviously I'd love it and it'd be enjoyable, but I want to do something that I think I can impact people as an educator. And as a teacher, it made sense to do something within maths education. And I know that when you mention maths to people, if I meet people after school on a Friday, you know, at the pub, and I meet a random person, I'm Bobby. I'm a maths teacher. They'll often go, "I need to head to the bathroom." head the other direction.
7: It, it's the
4: same when you tell people that you're a, that you're an astrophysicist. They look <laughs> at you as if you've just grown some tentacles or something. <laughs> yeah, I, I,
5: and we provoke that reaction. Mm. Um, and with maths in particular, I think a lot of people had negative experiences at school that makes them think they can or can't do maths. And again, I'm not saying that all of us are going to be born with the capability of becoming a a Fields Medal or a Nobel Prize physicist, but all of us can become competent. And again, my only disclaimer is there are some people with dyscalculia. It's like the maths equivalent of dyslexia, and about 3 to 5%. So for them, they've got other issues, but they can still learn to appreciate mathematics. And I think, so my PhD is trying to understand why people get anxious about maths, and the sort of technical term is... It's a negative emotional response when you see mathematics. And um, for school children, it can be in the classroom, they doing a long division problem, which, weird, long division, you never use again till you do first year A level, when you do algebraic division. Kids in year six see it, but they don't see it till year twelve again. <laughs> um, or adults, we've all been in that place where we're splitting a restaurant bill, you know, after you've had an amazing end of term University of Manchester physics party, and then, you know, you're out there with your... I, <laughs> <heard>. <laughs> <laughs> I need to be invited to <laughs> Um, and he the restaurant bill, and they'll pass it to someone they think is good at maths and arithmetic. And you know, I have been passed the bill at times, and I'm like, oh god, I'm under pressure now. And I crack, and I'm saying, oh, yours was 12, yours was 18 pounds. No, Bobby, you're wrong, you're wrong! So I think um, there's something about maths that makes people anxious, and I want to try and understand why that is. But the interesting thing is, so initially, when I started my doctorate, it was focused purely on anxiety in a classroom sort of circumstance. But because I've done more and more media work, I'm trying to actually understand the role I think the media play in being negative about the subject. Because I can tell you often when I do stuff with the BBC or on other channels, and they'll introduce me so we've got Bobby Seagull, the nice maths teacher. And I'm a nice maths teacher. You know, I'm a nice guy. How are you? I'm smiling here. I always smile. Actually, I smile too much. In class, sometimes I have to learn. Actually, sometimes it's sort of a side side topic, but I try and method act. I try and think about angry moments in my life when I'm trying to be serious. Because otherwise, my smile just keeps beaming through, And it's useless if you are being angry at a class. You should ne- <laughs> never actually be angry. If you're angry at them, then you've lost. What you've got to do is pretend to be angry. That way you're fully in control.
6: Very um, <laughs> good.
5: Yeah, so better anxiety. I'm trying to understand the role of the media play in perpetuating negative stereotypes. Because if you ever do stuff with the media, like, and even you have a chance, when people look at the, the maths, the science, and of course, being a geek is a good thing, but they look at us in a sort of weird, like they're like some different species. Only, you know, they've got like really special gifts that make them good at maths or physics or science. But I don't think we should be put in the pedestal. You know, we we are good at the sciences because we enjoy it and we like it at school, so therefore we put effort into it. And these same people that often may criticize scientists, actually, if you ask them about Love Island or football, they can reel up lots of stats about the Instagram mm. followers that uh, uh was it Danny Danny Dyer has or Molly Mayhe who won this year. Uh she didn't win, she came round up but anyway, she was close to winning. Amber Gill actually one, Just in case you think I don't know my Love Island facts, <laughs> but they'll they recall stats about their Instagram followers or football league tables. So it's not numbers per se, but it's the context of numbers. Again, that's why I think, especially physics and astrophysics, I think the visuals are amazing. If we can try and in schools get kids to learn about math through astrophysics, that that really could sell it to kids.
4: And I suppose it's it's relating it to as you it's relating it to what actually people experience themselves and like so you talk about the Instagram followers or anything like that and actually I think now is a great time to talk about your t-shirt um do you, would you like to explain your t-shirt to our listeners please I realize this isn't something that necessarily goes across very well over the, <laughs> the podcast uh but we'll do our best
5: okay so firstly it says here say no to mathematically I'm being upside down which is right so like, say no to mathematically impossible street signs so I wore this actually this this morning. I was doing the BBC newspaper review, and before I was going onto the set, someone came over, looked a bit nervous, a junior person, and they said, "Oh, my, um, that shirt. Have you cleared it with uh, cleared it with management or the production team?" I said, "Why? Because said, that's a, that's a, is that a political statement?" And I said, oh, "It's a geometrical statement." And they're like, "Oh, what do you mean? It's a, a math thing." And they sort of felt assured I could wear it on TV. Uh, because when you see like a, a football with a forbidden sign, you think, "Oh God, is this like this person against sport?" Um, so on, in the UK, you know you've got um, signs that are brown, road signs, and there's a football or sports stadium, that have a football there. And then Matt Parker, again, I love Matt Parker, my favourite public mass communicator. He's my, like my, my what is that, Obi-Wan Kenobi? <laughs> <laughs> I'm
4: trying to think of a, uh, it does. I was looking,
5: it's from the David Beckham of mass communication.
6: Yeah. <laughs> David Beckham,
5: yeah, he's adored by hundreds of thousands of screaming mass fans. And he noted that the football street signs um, have all hexagons. And we know tessellation. On a flat surface, obviously we could put hexagons or squares or triangles um, on a floor, tile surface or on a wall. But footballs are three-dimensional objects. And because if you look at classic footballs, they have pentagons and hexagons. And they do tessellate. But football street signs are mathematically incorrect. So Matt Parker actually set up a petition uh, a few years ago and he got enough signatures for them to discuss it in Parliament. <laughs> and in Parliament they said actually they rejected it because they said if they changed it to the correct one with pentagons and hexagons people might get distracted because it's correct.
4: But what about the
2: people
5: that get distracted no. because it's not <laughs> correct? <laughs> there's a number, of, there's a number of out there. Oh. So this shirt essentially is where are saying no it is. We need to put a stance down somewhere. you know, don't put their foot down on this. Then, you know, where, where's the world going to go?
2: Clearly, this is
4: the most important political issue that this country is really? currently facing. The, the
5: second most is related to math. So, um, I cycle around uh, a lot mm-hmm. in Cambridge, and I tie my bike up using a number lock. And normally, what are number locks called in the UK? They're called being with C. So like oh, combination. Combination, uh-huh, yeah. I it's, yeah. So, again, uh, if it my, my, <laughs> my lock c- combination was one two three four, and one of my students did four three two one. They said it didn't unlock your bike. Yeah, but I gave you the right combination because mathematically a permutation is where the order matters. So I remember I did a tongue-in-cheek campaign a couple of years ago, which I managed to re-pick up with Argus and Halfords, trying to get them to put an asterisk saying combination locks should technically be <laughs> called permutation locks. So again, that's another mathematics. That to me, that's the second biggest tragedy of our times behind the football. <laughs> if those two get corrected, Britain will be sorted.
4: You know what, let's do it. Let's make a job cast campaign uh, to, to sort all the, all these big issues out. One, one thing
6: I quite liked in your, in your talk is um, you showed a clip, I can't remember what TV show, but you showed some adults or presenters mm. doing maths again. And I thought it was quite interesting because although you're our math teacher, you're into getting uh, adults to re-engage with maths, I think you put it as well. I thought that was interesting, kind of undiscussed to me. I don't hear enough of emphasis of adults should brush up on their maths skills a bit.
5: Yeah, and again... When people think of math, they think it's purely a school subject, you know, kids learning how to uh, plot graphs, working out speed, distance, times, uh, doing rearranging of equations. These are purely the school thing. But actually, most people in the real world, whether you're planning a journey into work and trying to work out when you need to leave to get somewhere in a particular time, or you're budgeting for a household, or looking at going shopping and trying to recreate something you sort saw of in Bake Off, which you, you know you absolutely butcher in the the, the kitchen. You are using maths and numbers all the time. I think that's the thing, we need to, obviously I'd love people to be competent at maths in an exam and recreate things and get certificates and qualifications. But I think with maths and numbers and numeracy, most people do engage with, again, whether it's like looking at Instagram followers or checking the charts and the music or checking your train times, it's basic numeracy. But people don't see it as that, because they see maths as some they did in exam conditions in school that they didn't particularly like, and they had difficulty learning timetables. times tables. So I, think, I always think maths underlying stuff has got really beautiful things to sell, but it needs a makeover. And there are people at like Matt Parker doing the makeover, so once maths has that makeover, I think more the public will be willing to buy into it.
4: Because I think that's definitely something that astronomy has had in recent years. You know, I feel like historically astronomy might have been seen as a bit of an anorak hobby. You know, just just people standing around in a cold field and uh, not not particularly exciting. But then I think yeah, astronomy has definitely been romanticised recently, and it's gotten a lot of people interested. Uh, and I think it's really helped the the hobby and also the research fields uh, really take off quite
5: a lot recently, um, so yeah, we, we should definitely do that with maths, I think. Yeah, that's, I'm very jealous when I see a number of astrophysics types programs on television. And again, if you ask people what sort of programs they watch the documentaries, they might the say history, but a lot of people will talk about astrophysics-based stuff, because I think the, the great thing that your subject has is it's got that visual cell. You just look at it and you can just sit back and go, wow, I might not understand the, the science behind it, but I'm just impressed. Um, so maths, again, it's harder to make... maths is sexy. But it's harder to give that a because a lot of people, if you see you know, the, the, the classic famous equation, e to the i pi plus one is zero, the man or woman in the street, they're like, that's not really interesting. But mathematicians are like, it's pretty cool, you know, it looks, it's, it's pretty neat. Although uh, most, most of my friends doing pure math PhDs don't really like that. They think there are many more beautiful things. But <laughs> to the, some of that's done A level, I think that is a beautiful thing to look at.
4: Um, and so now I believe that, Bobby, you've brought all, along a little tunnel for our Jodcast listeners to ponder upon.
5: Yes. So, back in April, we had uh, the first ever image and i 'm doing my inverted commas of a black hole was um, Dr. Katie Bauman, her team, and the other the scientists. they also developed an algorithm that produced that first ever image uh, that as a reconstructed picture of the shadow as it were or, that the black hole cast in the light behind it so um, it 's an arithmetic puzzle, it wasn 't for my students to get them really hooked on, on 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 space science, but so the supermassive black hole at the center of galaxy M87 is approximately uh, 25 billion miles wide. Um, So if the Voyager 1 spacecraft were able to maintain, and again this is a mathematical universe, that speed of 40,000 miles an hour, exactly never varying, um, how many years would it take to travel across that equivalent distance of 25 billion miles?
4: Cool. Well, if you want to uh, have a go at that little puzzle and uh, send in your answers, I'm sure we will uh, reveal the answer at some point in the future. Um, well, thank you for joining us. It's been really interesting and something a little bit different, I think, for, for the Jodcast, not just talking about kind of the, the, the pure astronomy fields that we often so have on uh, on our interviews, but also thinking a little bit more about yeah, digging into the, the mass of astronomy as a whole. So um, really interesting. Thank you very much. And if you want to dig into this a little bit more, I believe that you've got a chapter in your book about the mass of space and the mass of astronomy.
5: Yes, yeah, so I wrote a book called uh, The Life-Changing Magic of Numbers, available in all good bookstores and electronic stores. But essentially, it was almost like a, a response to why people don't like math. And I thought, let me write a book about it. So essentially, it's partly autobiographical. So I look at different aspects of my life, like whether it was my you know, time trying to cook or doing sports or getting interested in space astronomy because my class had all the names of planets. Um, And I try to show people actually math can be seen in a fun way. Um, So if you're looking for something that, even if you're someone that's a confident mathematician and got a PhD, it's a nice book to remind you that math uh, can be really fun. Or if you're not confident, in fact, I always recommend it for people that had a really negative experience at school because if they read the book... Again, I like to think when I write things, I sort of do it in a really simple, straightforward way. It can make people think, actually, maths and science can be quite cool. So definitely a, a good Christmas gift. Again, for people that use Twitter or Instagram, if they message me, I'm really good at sending people handwritten messages uh, that they can print out and stick uh, for their books, so, like a personalised Bobby Seagull message.
4: Thanks again for joining us. This has been really, really interesting. Yes, yeah, thank
5: you, Bobby. It's been great. <laughs> thank
4: you, John.
5: Thank you. Thank you, uh, you Joe.
2: Thanks for that, Emma and Joe. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other bits that we can't fit in anywhere else, the odds
0: So I've been following a lot of the developments in Hawaii concerning the 30-meter telescope for a while, in part because I used to be a PhD student at the Institute for Astronomy in Hawaii. So I've been following a lot of the developments in Hawaii surrounding the 30-meter telescope, Uh, which is currently blocked by protesters who are worried about the cultural sites and the environment on the summit of Maakea. And the most recent news regarding the telescope is that uh, they have been looking at potentially relocating to an alternative site in the Canary Islands, on the island of La Palma specifically, And they very recently obtained all of the permits that they would need to build construction. So there hasn't been any news that has come out specifically. No definitive statement from the organization saying that they're definitely going to leave Mauna Kea and relocate to the Canary Islands, but they certainly seem to have gotten a bit closer. And also the other thing that I found interesting was that they also have a website called tmtlapalma.org. So I just thought that was very interesting. Um, Phoebe Hongying, you have any thoughts on um, any of this?
2: I definitely think it adds more credibility to the move, and I think it would definitely end the protests around Mauna Kea being such a spiritual site for the local inhabitants of Hawaii. And I definitely wouldn't
0: object to having less jet lag. So the European uh project for a next-generation optical near-infrared telescope is the ESO Extremely Large Telescope, which took its name from the next KCD comic strip. Um, that, unfortunately, is going to be in Chile, so if you want to go observe there, you're going to have to face jet lag. So, the other interesting thing related to all of this, too, is that Hong Ying is going to be going to the American Astronomical Society winter meeting, which this year, or technically next year, is going to be held in Honolulu in January.
2: Yes. So, the AAAS meeting will hold for a week long, and there will be talks every day, and also some lectures for students to register. Like, I register a one-day-long Python lecture designed for for students who do astronomy.
0: That actually sounds like a very good opportunity. And you get to see Hawaii. Yes. The meeting will be at the Hawaiian Convention Center, uh, which is actually close to Waikiki.
1: Yes.
0: And where are you staying when you go visit the uh, meeting?
2: So, I will live in a hotel, 5 minutes walk away from the conference center.
0: In Waikiki, actually.
2: Yes. Yeah. Just near the sea. On the sea? Nope.
0: No, not that expensive. Yeah. Since I left Hawaii, I've been back through Honolulu a few times on plane layovers while traveling to the Big Island on observing trips. And I've been able to find cheap hotels, actually, in Waikiki, kind of back from the beach, which is kind of nice because... um you're kind of near restaurants, and you're kind of near interesting stuff to do, and there are also good transport links to and from the airport. But at the same time, uh, I'm not spending a huge fortune uh, just to, to uh, stay one night in the city. So do you have any other plans on things that you want to see at the conference, or things that you want to see in Hawaii?
2: So I will rent a car to drive all around the island.
0: But no specific plans.
2: Um, I will also go snoggering. And I just got a book for fishes from George. Thanks for that.
0: I want the book back, though. (laughs) I will
2: definitely redo it.
0: (laughs) Um, Any plans on any specific talks you want to see at the conference, though?
2: I actually have no idea what is going on specifically on the meeting because they don't give a schedule for
0: well, it sounds like it'll be an interesting trip for you going to Hawaii anyway. Yes. And it does sound like the workshops at the conference are going to be a good opportunity for you as well.
2: Yes. And now here's Ian Morrison with this month's night sky for both Hawaii and the rest of the Northern Hemisphere.
8: The night sky for December 2019. As darkness falls, we can still see Not far above the western horizon, or in fact towards the northwest, the bright stars Deneb in Cygnus and Vega in Lyra. They're part of the Summer Triangle, but they're still visible quite late towards winter as the nights draw on. Setting towards the western horizon is the Great Square of Pegasus. Above that to the left is the constellation Andromeda, which contains, of course, the Andromeda Galaxy M31. If you start from Alpha Rats, which is the top left-hand star of the square, actually Alpha Andromeda, move one star to the left, fork round a little bit to a second bright star, then turn through 90 degrees right, another star, and then the same distance again. You should see a fuzzy smudge with binoculars, and even on a very dark, clear night with your unaided eye. Above Andromeda is the W-shaped constellation of Cassiopeia and if you take the right hand V like a little arrow it actually points down towards Andromeda making another way to find it down to the left from Cassiopeia is the constellation of Perseus its brightest star is Murphak and has a star called Algol called the Demon Star because its brightness changes every so often it's actually an eclipsing binary and then there's another bright, very bright star in the northern hemisphere, which is called Capella, which is the brightest star of our Riga. That's actually in the Milky Way, and there are some very nice open clusters that can be seen through a small telescope in our Riga. Then, of course, rising in the east is our winter sky. First of all, we have Taurus, with two open clusters, the Hyades cluster and the Pleiades a wonderful little group of stars, sometimes called the Seven Sisters. In the Hyades cluster, or rather towards it, is the bright star, a red giant called Aldebaran. It's about halfway between us and the actual cluster. And then gradually rising in the southeast is that wonderful constellation of Orion the Hunter. The three stars that make up his belt point up towards the Hyades and the Pleiades and down to the left towards the brightest star in the northern hemisphere, Sirius in Canis Major. Up to the left, and rising in the east, is the constellation of Gemini with the heavenly twins. So, some lovely constellations to look at during this month of December. But what about the planets? Well, Jupiter, shining on the first of the month at magnitude minus 1.8, and with an angular size of 32 arc seconds, can be seen very low in the southwest as darkness falls, but soon after it will be lost in the sun's glare. It lies in the southeastern part of Ophiuchus and heading towards the most southerly part of the ecliptic, so when it appears in the twilight, will only have an elevation of about 6 degrees. With such a low elevation, atmospheric dispersion will take its toll. And a device called an atmospheric dispersion corrector, composed of two prisms, would greatly help improve our views of the giant planet and its four Galilean moons. Now Saturn will be seen west of south as darkness falls at the start of the month. Then its disk is 16 arcseconds across and the rings, which are still open at about 24 degrees to the line of sight, spanning some 36 arcseconds across. During the month, its brightness remains at plus 0.6, and its angular size at 15.4 arcseconds. Again, now in Sagittarius, and lying to the southeastern side of the Milky Way, is at the lowest point of the ecliptic, and only has an elevation of about 12 degrees after sunset. Now Mercury, following its transit of the sun on the 11th of November, and reaching its greatest elongation west on the 28th of that month, it can be seen in the pre-dawn sky, low in the southeast at the start of December. On the 1st, it will have a magnitude of plus 0.29 and will rise about an hour before the sun. It will then have an elevation of some 9 degrees before being lost in the sun's glare. With an angular size of about 5 arc seconds, it will then fall back towards the sun and be lost from view by the middle of the month. Now Mars at the start of its new apparition, can be seen towards the southeast in the pre-dawn sky. It rises some two and a half hours before the sun at the start of the month and will have an elevation of about 15 degrees before it's lost in the sun's glare. It then has a magnitude of plus 1.7 and an angular size of 3.9 arc seconds with a salmon pink disc. By month's end, it will be seen further round towards the south before dawn Its magnitude will have increased slightly towards plus 1.6. Venus may just be glimpsed in the southwest at the start of the month, but will be difficult to see due to the fact that the ecliptic is at a sallow angle to the horizon and Venus will have a very low elevation. As the month progresses, it will rise higher in the sky and on the 31st will have reached an elevation of about 14 degrees, as darkness falls. During the month, its magnitude remains at about minus four magnitudes, and its disk increases from 11.6 to 13 arc seconds across. A low horizon, and quite possibly binoculars, will be needed to spot Venus, but please do not use them until after the sun has set. Finally, some highlights of the month. Well, in the evening, it's quite a good time to look high in the southeast after dark towards the constellations of Cassiopeia and Perseus. Perseus contains two interesting objects. The double cluster lying on the border between Cassiopeia and Perseus. Very lovely, in binoculars or a small telescope. And Algol, the demon star I mentioned earlier. It's an eclipsing binary system. Normally the pair has a steady magnitude of plus 2.2. But every 2.86 days, this briefly drops to magnitude plus 3.4. December is still a good month to find Uranus. It reached opposition at the end of October. With a magnitude of plus 5.7, binoculars will easily spot it, and from a really dark site, it might even be visible to the unaided eye. A medium aperture telescope will reveal Uranus's 3.7 arc second wide disk, showing its turquoise colour. It lies in Aries, close to the borders of Pisces and Cetus, as shown on the chart that you'll find in the night sky page I write for the observatory. Just search for night sky, Joggle Bank. On the 1st of December, before dawn, looking southeast, you might see a nice line-up of Mercury, Mars, and the star Bica in Virgo. Arcturus will be seen high up to their left. On the 10th, after sunset, Venus lies just two degrees below Saturn. That would be worth looking for, but you need a very good low western horizon. On the 10th of December, the Moon, close to full, will lie between the Pleiades and Hyades clusters. On the 12th, before dawn, Mars at magnitude plus 1.67 will lie just above the double star Alpha Libri magnitudes plus 2.74 and plus 5.5 despite its name it's the second brightest star in Libra and that would make a nice image using a small telescope and camera. We do have two meteor showers in December on the mornings of December the 14th and 15th after midnight there's a good chance of observing the peak of the Geminid meteor shower. The moon's at first quarter and will set about 11pm, so when Germany is highest in the sky, its light will not hinder our view. The Geminids can often produce near fireballs, and so the shower is well worth observing, should it be clear. An observing location well away from towns and cities will pay dividends. The relatively slow-moving meteors arise from the debris released from the asteroid 3200 Phaeton. That's unusual, as most meteor showers come from comets. The radiant, which is where the meteors appear to come from, is close to the bright star Castor in the constellation of Germany, hence the name. If it's clear, it'll be cold, so wrap up well, wear a woolly hat, and have some hot drinks with you. Later that month, on the 22nd, 23rd, in the late evening, you might spot the Ursid meteor shower. The peak of about 10 to 15 meteors per hour is not that great. Sadly, this year, full moon is on the 21st, so its light will greatly hinder our view. The radiant lies close to the star Kokab in Ursa Minor, hence their name, to look northwards at high elevation. Occasionally, there can be a far higher rate, so it's worth having a go, should it be clear. And finally, i like to say something about objects you can see on the moon. And on the evenings of the 5th and the 18th, the Terminator is close to what is called the straight wall, or Rupert's Rector. To be honest, it's not really a wall at all, but a gentle scarp, as Sir Patrick has said. Neither is it a wall, nor is it straight. But it does actually look rather nice using a small telescope. So I do hope we get some more clear nights in December than we've had in November and you have a chance to observe the heavens. Good hunting.
2: Thanks for that, Ian, and for our Southern Hemisphere listeners. Here's Haritina Mogoshan and Samuel Lack with the night sky where you are.
7: Hello, from New Zealand. Hello, everyone. I'm Haritina Mogoshana.
9: And I'm Samuel Lisske.
7: And this time we went to Stonehenge Aotearoa, but don't worry, this is still in the southern hemisphere.
9: Stonehenge Aotearoa is the centre for archaeoastronomy in New Zealand. There is a beautiful observatory built there with ancient knowledge and modern technology, such as surveyors and cement. This is literally a stonehenge. There are stones that mark the rising and setting of the sun at the solstices and the equinoxes. It's an amazing place in the middle of the most amazing dark sky that the North Island of New Zealand can provide. And since it's not far away from Wellington, we had the chance to pop over there and actually do some proper stargazing, rather than looking at the Dome of the Planetarium, which is all you can really do in Wellington.
7: And to be fair, Wairarapa has an amazing night sky, which rivals in beauty and darkness with the one from Lake Tekapo.
9: Well, in fact, as we were talking to someone the other day who had their dark sky meter out, Um, they found they got exactly the same reading as nearly everywhere else they go. So it seems to be in New Zealand, if you just get out of town, then you're in a dark sky location.
7: We are back with instructions for you as what to do with the December night sky.
9: And for those of us who don't really read instructions, then just listen along and we'll take you on a journey of how awesome the night sky is at this time of the year. Now... You might think, for people in summertime like us, that December must be the worst time of the year to look up and observe the night sky because it doesn't get dark, properly dark, until what, 10.30 at night? Yeah, 10.30 at night,
7: that's when the, the night night starts.
9: So you do have to stay up late, and you know, on a school night maybe you'll be sleepy the next day. But it's still uh, worth making the most of any of those clear nights to get up there, stay up late, and enjoy what's on offer.
7: So, December has some really cool things to offer. Um, there is a full moon. There's always a full moon during a month, yeah, right? Just about, about month. just about every month. Just about every month. The moon dies what the moon does. Not just that it gets full, but it goes close by all the visible planets in the sky. So, we talk about that and when it happens. And also, this month, we experience the summer solstice when we have the longest Day, yay, and I'll never get used to, I don't think I'll ever, ever get used to having Christmas in summertime, I'm sorry.
9: Well, it's the normal time of year, when else would you have it? Uh, I don't know. What, in, in winter, winter or something silly like with, that? with
7: snow and stuff. <laughs> oh,
9: well, that's crazy, because <laughs> how can you go to the beach, have a barbecue <laughs> and swim on Christmas Day No. if you live in an ice cube? <laughs>
7: um, And also, really cool, our second interstellar visitor, Comet 2i Borisov is at it's closest approach to Earth later on in December.
9: The idea of this show is that you will get your stargazing thing on and get observing. Well, we hope so. Mm-hmm. We've been trying to keep it up with that. So for the last few weeks, every weekend, we take out our telescopes and go to a dark sky location in Screamos, New Zealand, just so we know what we're talking about when we ask you to look up.
7: Well, we felt ashamed that we haven't done this for a while, so we thought we we're going to commit to this, and go and observe every weekend.
9: So, the site that will greet you now, when you go outside about, around about 10 o'clock I suppose, you'll start seeing well, well, you start seeing the sun disappear obviously, it's well gone by then.
1: And clouds.
9: And, and clouds, hopefully they're gone too. But what you'll first start you'll probably see if you're looking with sharp eyes is Canopus. And then of course mm. if you look up a little bit further you'll see Arcana and then a little bit further you'll see and They make kind of a Nice line of three stars. Now, closer to the horizon, you'll probably also see Sirius start to appear.
7: Yeah, if you wait a little bit more. Mm. So we had to wait until almost 11 to see it properly.
9: Yeah, that was when it was dark enough and high enough. Mind you, there was a little mm. bit of cloud on the horizon, which mm. probably stopped it. But what you've got there, of course, is you've got this big patch of sky, which doesn't have a whole lot in it from what the naked eye sees. And then on the horizon, on the eastern horizon, and sort of from, I guess, southeast to sort of northeast, you've got the Milky Way stretching all the way from the Southern Cross to the south, and then nearly around to, well, not quite north, but maybe Mm. northeast, you've got Pleiades. And so between them, you've got the whole Milky Way just sitting there on the horizon. In fact, in December, it's starting to tilt up a little bit. Not quite the same as November.
7: And we're actually looking towards the outskirts of the galaxy. Mm. Orion is towards the edge.
9: So we've lost the opportunity to see uh, Scorpius and all the fun clusters and nebula because oh, it's long
7: gone. Bye bye, Scorpius. The yeah. sun is now inhabiting those uh, constellations. So yeah. look for Orion on the eastern horizon as it reappears in the night sky. And for the next half year, the sky will be dominated by uh, by Orion and actually by bright stars. And it's not so much the Milky Way. But these stars that we're going to see in the sky, and we see, you said we start to seeing Canopus, and the reason for that is that Canopus is really high in the sky. Kind of popped up.
1: Who yeah, rest, first, it? yeah, because yeah.
7: it's the second brightest star as well. And mm. the reason you don't see Sirius first is because Sirius is very close to the horizon.
1: Are
9: you serious?
7: Uh, <laughs> I am serious. Look for Sirius, the dog star to the right of Orion's belt.
9: And of course, the other really bright star that you'll see is number three which is Alpha Centauri. And of course, Alpha Centauri, when it appears, that's pointing, well, because it's one of the pointers, of course, is pointing towards the Southern Cross, which won't quite be there when you first see it in the evening. You've still got to wait about half an hour to an hour, then you'll see the rest of the Southern Cross. But still, it's there, and Alpha Centauri shines in all of its glory.
7: And, and they're really cool because when you look at Orion's Belt, and New Zealanders here call it the pot for obvious reasons. Because it, like <laughs> it looks like a pot. It looks like a pot. So got Orion's it doesn't belt. look
9: like a joker with a sword and a shield, that's for sure.
7: No, 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 okay, fine. <laughs> it doesn't, no, it, it does look like a pot. So you look at Orion's belt, and Orion's belt is pa- parallel to the horizon, and then what you have to do is you, you really stretch your arm, and then you stretch your fingers, like, a lot. So from your pinky to your thumb, you have almost 22 degrees. And that's the distance between the edge of Orion's belt To Sirius. So that's how you find Sirius. Or just
9: look for the brightest star in the
7: If Sirius is on the horizon. Other than the sun. Other than the sun, yes. On the other side of Orion's belt, but to the left, you will see Aldebaran.
9: Which is a lovely red star.
7: So they're both at the same distance from Orion's belt, so that's how you can see
9: them. So the other star that actually appears, probably after Alpha Centauri at this time of the year, will Mm. be Rigel. Yeah. Because that's a nice bright star, and it's quite high because it's the, well... In the Northern Hemisphere, it's the bottom of Orion, but in the Southern Hemisphere, of course, it's at the top. You keep an eye on Rigel, and then you start seeing the the, um, Orion's belt start appearing. And then you know your your telescope should be nice and cool and you get ready to look at the first thing, which is probably M42 or the Orion Nebula.
7: Yeah, which was spectacular, by the way. So we observed it in the um, 8-inch telescope, and then we observed it in the 16-inch telescope. And you could see the four stars, and you could see the widths of nebula around it and was absolutely fantastic
9: oh it looks amazing
7: really really beautiful um, the other thing you can see to the left of uh, Aldebaran and the Hyades is obviously the Pleiades so all these objects the Pleiades that are about three fingers away from Aldebaran uh, Hyades and then 22 degrees to the right Orion's belt, and then 22 degrees to, to the right you see Sirius. Yeah. Yeah, they're on in the line. And then if you turn around about 60 degrees from that, you can actually see Alpha Centauri, and I know because I've measured it.
9: So that's our boring old galaxy, the Milky Way. Yeah. Which, um, I mean, let's face it, there's not a lot in there. It's only 400 billion stars.
7: Yeah.
9: And some nebula, and, well, yeah. there's our solar system, which is quite handy for us. But actually, at this time of the year, you can see a whole lot more than just the Milky Way by checking out the area that's almost up by the zenith and starting with uh, one of my favourite galaxies, Sculptor Galaxy. And it's um, nice and bright and really easy to see. It's a spiral galaxy, but it's kind of, it's not edge on, but it's on quite an angle, so you don't really see the spiral arms unless you've got a super powerful telescope. But what it looks like in the eyepiece is just, on a smaller telescope, it looks like a big smudge. It goes across the whole eyepiece and if you've got a really dark sky location it will take up the whole eyepiece it's quite big and then if you yeah if you have a decent sized telescope you can also see a little bit of it's almost like sparkly little knots of kind of something in there you know which is kind of cool
7: i drew it i drew it um last week and it was really cool because there are three stars there Mm. they make a really pointy triangle and sculptor the galaxies in between these three pointy stars. And it was really interesting to see how my eye adjusted to the darkness. As at, at the time passed, because we observed like a few times, we pointed the at telescopes at, it at different times of the night, because we could. And you can see the difference between an 18-inch telescope and a 16-inch telescope, how much light it gathers and and how much more detail you can see in that amazing thing. But I absolutely love it, and now it's my favorite thing to find. And it's very close to the Nefkaitos.
9: It's very easy to find. So if you can find Deneb Kaitos, that's probably, well, that's also a fairly bright
7: what star. What is Deneb Kaitos?
9: It's a star. So it makes this nice triangle with Formahol and Arkana. Anyway, so what you do is you imagine a line between Arcturus and um, Formahol, and you sort of go in about three or four fingers, but so fingers you know outstretched, so the width is about four fingers, and that's where you'll find a Sculptor Galaxy. And it's a it's a big galaxy. and This kind of looks like a elliptical.
7: Smudge. I almost see it with the naked eye as well. I could Well, you can totally it see it smudge. in binoculars. Yeah. yeah, I mean, in binoculars we found it, but also with the naked eye, it's like something happening. Is there some action in that part of the sky?
9: But there's a lot there. So on your journey along your four fingers to get there, about halfway is another much fainter galaxy, uh, NGC 247, which is also kind of an elongated smudge as well. But if, if you've got a big telescope, you'll totally see that. And, you know, you've got to use your best averted... Um, Uh, vision and and nudge the telescope a little bit so it moves so you can pick up the movement. Now a little bit beyond Sculptor is a beautiful uh, globular cluster, NGC 288, and it's quite fantastic to look at. Now, in the Sculptor group there's another couple of galaxies as well, there's NGC 300 and NGC 55. Now NGC 55 is really easy to see, it's like Sculptor, Um, it's a bit thinner and longer. Um, but it, it's almost like a line of a smudge, really. Mm. It's, kind, it's kind, of a cool, so that's kind of a cool galaxy look at, so that pops out easy. NGC 300 is much harder, though. Its kind of northern equivalent would be M33. Hey. Um, and, in, and you know with M33, it's hard to see because its surface brightness is, is spread out over such a big distance. It's actually really hard to see it. NGC 300 is nowhere near as big as M33, but it's that, that same problem. It's sort of a face-on spiral, and all that brightness um, is sort of spread out over quite a quite a big distance. So even though it's a magnitude 7.9 galaxy, it is quite hard to see. So you need a really dark sky and you need a pretty decent-sized telescope.
7: And this sculptor galaxy, like if you look at the pictures that people drew on this sculptor galaxy, it's really funny. It's almost like a ladder with shelves in, in the sky and a bust of a statue. On top of it, so it's quite a quite a funny thing. But here in the southern hemisphere, it goes all the way up to zenith, so you have really clear skies when you look up to this part of the sky. And obviously, is uh, is near Fomalhaut, which is uh, one of my favorite stars, and Grus, which is one of my favorite constellations. And when you look at Grus, that's really beautiful to see. There are all these double stars. And you know, when you look at it with the telescope, it's even it's even more beautiful because you can see all these double, 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 double stars.
9: Well, actually, Alpha Centauri. I'm talking about. Well, we'll leave the galaxies <laughs> for a moment and come back to the Milky Way. Alpha Centauri is is, is actually a double star as well, as as we know. Um, in fact, it's a triple, really. I guess with that Proxima. But of course, the two stars that are the ones close together in Alpha Centauri A and B. If you put one, imagine it was our solar system. So one of them would be where the sun is. The other one would be where Neptune is. So imagine what that solar system would be like. Because those stars are kind of a bit like our sun. They're maybe a tiny bit bigger. But imagine that, you know, two stars like ours. You know, what kind of sunsets would you have? I don't know how conducive it would be do for have, life.
7: Do you have life? Yeah. Could you have planets orbiting around them?
9: Probably. I planets seem to be orbiting
7: everything. Orbiting around two suns, like mm. Tatooine. How many mm. suns were on Tatooine? Was it three?
9: Two three three? three suns on Tatooine. So what are the planets
7: up to? Planet. Well, what we saw, we didn't see Saturn because it was very cloudy towards that part of the sky, which is very sad because I always love to see Saturn and it's such a beautiful, beautiful planet. But we did see Jupiter and Jupiter has uh, um, four satellites, as everybody knows, that you can see with the telescope. We saw three this But weekend. are we
9: going to tell people the disappointing bit about December? No. Saturn, no, Jupiter.
7: No, don't tell them. Okay. Do not tell they'll them. They'll
9: find out for themselves. <laughs>
7: Well, okay, tell them. <laughs> well,
9: if you haven't seen Saturn and Jupiter this year, you better get out there in the next couple of days because it, they're disappearing. They're getting lower and lower in the, on the horizon each evening. They're getting chased around by the moon you know, at the moment, but they won't be in view for much longer. Um, and you know, Pluto's hanging around them, but Pluto will be very hard to see now because it's um, too low and it's not very bright. You've still got Neptune. Neptune's still at a pretty good altitude, and Uranus is at a pretty good altitude as well have look at. But then they are tiny and they're not really great to look yeah, at. I mean you can like see the disc of them.
7: Blue and green and they're not smell like cool. rotten eggs
9: and yeah, not as cool as Jupiter, Saturn.
7: So when is the moon passing by these um things?
9: Well it gets close to Neptune on the fourth, so it went this week and on Wednesday. And then um on the 9th so next uh, next Monday and Sunday that evening it's it's pretty close to Uranus. But it'll be quite bright, so you'll really struggle to and then about well actually when it's when it's almost full It'll be in that bit of sky between Pleiades and Hades, which is kind of cool. Now, of course, the moon will be full, almost full. So you know she going to see a whole lot other than a really bright
7: moon. Yeah, but still, I mean, these are quite bright stars. Mm. And then,
9: of course, as, the, as that week, as, as next week comes to an end, the moon will be um, going heading through Gemini and then Cancer and Leo. And by the middle of the month, it'll be sort of hanging around Leo go and then gone
7: and then Christmas time comes you can throw a star party as well because there'll be no moon in the sky yeah it, could,
1: yeah
7: it will be quite cool and then the moon towards the end of the year will have a close encounter with uh, Mars and with Venus and Mercury can we see Mercury I don't think we can see Mercury. Back
9: on, on, well you could if you um stood on a very high hill and had a really good horizon
7: and you, you wake up very early in the morning because it's in the morning sky. So, yeah, I, I don't like to wake up very early in the morning. So probably I won't see Mercury this month.
9: Well, our northern hemisphere um, listeners, they will see it. They will, they will have a, a really good view of it. And, I mean, it'll be close to the sun, but they'll they'll see the, um, have a good view of Mercury for a little while.
7: Mm, and this month, um, other than that, there's a couple of meteor showers visible. The valids at the beginning of December, and the Geminids, but um the Gemini. Well, because Gemini is not so high on the horizon, then it won't be so so visible. The Geminids is anytime between 7 and 17 of December. Don't look directly to the radiant because that's where the point is, like where the meteors seem to appear in the in the night sky. Look away from it. That's how you can catch most of them. So we also looked towards the southern part of the Milky Way, which was close to, well, n- near the Southern Cross and the Diamond Cross and the False Cross. And it's always a really, really good region to see.
9: And there's some amazing clusters in that area. I mean, there's the awesome nebula, of course, occur in the Nebula. But there's some clusters. And there's one cluster in particular that I really like, which is a um, gem cluster which is uh, really close to Edicarina. And it probably doesn't get spoken about much because of its, um, you know, really uh, photogenic neighbour. But this is, um, this is Gem Cluster. It's a lovely, tight little cluster, NGC 3293, the magnitude of 4.7. Kind of a little bit like Jewel Box. Um, I think it's nicer than Jewel Box. I guess because Jewel Box gets all the attention. But but, but on the way... It's
7: beautiful. It has beautiful... Beautiful blue giants and red giants
9: colour. Oh, of it's stunning, yeah. is amazing. So not far from the Southern Cross, as you sort of travel up the Milky Way, you'll come to Pearl Cluster, which is another tight little cluster, uh, NGC 3766. That's a nice one. Oh, the stars in there, they're not so variant in colour, but it's still a beautiful one to look at. Then there's this other one, which is really amazing. I think it's called the Wishing Well, which is NGC 3532. And it's like a sea of stars. And, you know, it just fills the whole eyepiece. You know, the whole. you put a big eyepiece in there and it's just like full of these stars. It's amazing to look at. And then, of course, um, getting a little away from here um, Carina up towards the Southern Pleiades, which is at the bottom of the Diamond Cross, that's a lovely open cluster. And, you know, you can see why it's called the Southern Pleiades, because it kind of looks a little bit like Pleiades. It's not as bright and big, but it kind of looks the same-ish in the the eyepiece. You've got these hot blue stars.
7: And it also looks like the letter M, and I love this about it, because the other one that looks like what it says is the coat hanger in the Northern Hemisphere. (laughs) It looks like a coat hanger. This one looks like the letter M.
9: Yeah, and does. A good
7: binocular object as well. Yeah. And you you can totally see the I M in mean, binoculars.
9: And it looks really great in binoculars yeah. because it's nice and big. And then when you go up to the false cross, there's two really good clusters there. Imicron Valorum. Um, it sounds like Chancellor Valorum. Yeah, which is IC uh, 2391. Didn't get an NGC name, that one. But that's sort of off on the far side from uh, the Milky Way. And then um, heading towards the Large Magellanic Cloud, just above the false cross there, You've got NGC 2516, which is known as the Southern Beehive Cluster. And actually, when you look at it, it looks like a whole lot of bees swarming around. And it looks it looks quite cool. You can see why the Southern Beehive was picked for its name.
7: When we also have the Magellanic clouds. And of course,
9: in a dark sky location, the large Magellanic Cloud stands out. It really does stand out. It's very irid- ir- iridescent.
7: It does. It was surreal when we looked at it <laughs> in, in the weekend. And they're really easy to find. So if you find Sirius, the brightest star in the sky, and then Canopus, the second brightest star in the sky, you pretend you draw a line from Sirius to Canopus, you extend that line, you find the Magellanic clouds. It's as easy as that.
9: Yeah, and if it's in a dark sky, you can't miss it. You really yeah, or, or, or you just get sky. yourself
7: a dark sky and then yeah. you don't need to do all these measurements.
9: And it's funny because you look up and you'll see a cloud and you'll think, oh, there's a cloud up there. But that cloud is actually the Large Magellanic Cloud, not a um, cloud in our atmosphere.
7: And and in the city, when when you're like in Wellington, when we are here, it's quite hard to see and you have to use your averted vision or your peripheral vision.
9: And a bit of imagination. And a bit of imagination.
7: But when you go to a dark sky location, it just pops out and it's absolutely phenomenal.
9: And of course, it's the big spider, which is the, the draw card for our attention in the Large Magellanic Cloud, the tarantula nebula. And that's a stunning complex of a um, huge area of nebulosity.
7: And you can see the details. <coughs> you can totally see the details on mm. on the Tarantula Nebula.
9: Yeah, it's kind of got little round structures, you know, circular structures that kind of look a little bit like a spider. You know, thing. Well, with all these things is always a bit of imagination, isn't there?
7: Yeah, and and the small Magellanic Cloud, which is equally amazing, just that it's smaller. The small Magellanic Cloud is also amazing and it's our neighboring galaxy that is 200,000 light years away from us so it looks smaller than the large Magellanic Cloud that's 160,000 light years away from us. In the small Magellanic Cloud we have my favorite globular cluster in the whole world, 47 Japan. Ah, I
9: thought you were going to say NGC 362 which is the other globular cluster which is close to the small Magellanic Cloud and often overlooked because of its photo-hungry neighbour, but well, it's no. actually a really nice globular cluster in its own right. It's quite a tight one, very bright as well, but n- not the same as 472. I'm sorry,
7: I like 472 kind. Yeah, now, maybe you
9: haven't seen NGC362. <laughs> but I did. <laughs> it
7: is a beautiful cluster, indeed. Mm. It is smaller
9: than... Oh, much smaller, yeah. Well, you know, visually, much yeah. smaller. But still, they're both very stunning, and, and you know, it's very hard to compete with 472 because it's a very bright globular cluster. You can see it naked eye. Now if you're struggling to find the small Magellanic Cloud, uh, just look for the large Magellanic Cloud and something that looks a little bit like it, but a wee bit further away.
7: So this is our tour of the night sky. These are some of the amazing things that we observed in the night and this is what you can see in December.
9: And it's, it's amazing. It's a really, really good, you know, despite being a short sort of summer evening, there's still a lot of really cool things you can see, especially those galaxies up high. They look magnificent. Mm. Now, of course, on the, later in the month, it is, of course, the uh, summer solstice.
7: Where we have the longest day of the year and the shortest night, which we're not very, <laughs> we're not very enthusiastic about because it shortens even more.
9: Yeah, maybe the, like the worst day for astronomy.
7: The worst day for astronomy is going to come soon.
9: But the moon might be too bright, so... we we can have a moon
7: party. So it's really interesting, right? Because in New Zealand in December, the stars really shine from about 10.30 at night until, I don't know, 3, 4, 5 in the morning maximum. 4.30. You don't really have too much time. And we know we have this amazing sky. Orion is in the sky. In the Northern Hemisphere, we have the Winter Triangle. Um, And and here you have all these stars shining. But um, it's, it's just amazing how short the night is. But speaking of sources, we've interviewed Richard Hall and Kay Letter, who are there at Stonehenge Aotearoa every day, and they gave us an amazing glimpse into ancient civilization. And we talked about calendars, we talked about zodiacal constellations, we talked about how they built Stonehenge Aotearoa and who did it.
9: Well, the amazing thing about it is it's an observatory. It really is an observatory. And it's got, and it's a design, it's got hard-coded a bunch of things that happen and of course the sun during the equinoxes and the solstices is the thing that's hard-coded into six of the stones so there's one of the stones you look at you stand right in the middle and you look at the stone and it's perfectly matched to the height of the there's a hill a few miles away so it's perfectly matched to that horizon created by the hill and that's where the sun will set on the longest day and it's quite amazing it is exactly at that point the sun will appear to be just sitting on top of that stone which is quite amazing
7: i'm really looking forward actually Mm. to uh to see and we saw the sunset now and the sun was just a little bit aside from there and i was just standing there imagining um how would it look in december they have actually three stones so one is for the solstice The winter solstice, one is for the equinox and one is for the summer solstice, so you can totally tell the path of the sun in the sky, and uh, it is a modern representation of a stonehenge, of the henge of stones.
9: But it doesn't stop the local druids coming out. So while I've got my solar telescope out, trying to look for a fleeting glimpse of a sunspot, which doesn't seem to be a whole lot these days anymore, um, I'll have to be careful that I don't um, knock into any druids dancing around.
7: We hope that maybe one day you can come to New Zealand or if you are in New Zealand, you can come to Stonehenge, Aotearoa, and share a beautiful night of stargazing with us and from any other location in New Zealand, of course, where we have dark sky, which is basically anywhere away from a, from a city.
9: Hmm. And certainly not central Wellington.
7: And we hope you have an amazing end of year with beautiful gifts and and amazing planning ahead and all your wishes come through. And we wish you clear skies so that you can always see the stars. And as we say, always remember that we are made from the same stardust as they are. Have a great Christmas. See ya. Bye.
0: And thanks for that, Heratina and Sam. If you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net
2: or Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash jodcast
0: on YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast
2: or Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast and don't forget that you can send us posts. The address is on our website.
0: Thanks to Bobby Siegel for the interview. The editors were Hung Ming Tang, Tian Bezuidenhout, Lizzie Lee, Joseph Winicky, and Michael Wright. The producer was Tian Bezuidenhout. Until next time, ciao, on!